Welcome to episode 190 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, a, a notes and jokes episode. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going up out under the stars, and I really messed up last week. Shane, didn't I? <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll take it both on. You know, I could have corrected this, and I missed it too, but our numbering was out of whack. So if for anybody that caught that... Um... <laughs> The I guess the like the title of the episode had the right number. It's just the the intro to welcome to episode one eighty eight or whatever would have been incorrect, but no big deal. Yeah, my I'm sorry for that. That was because what I do is I there's a there's sort of a bit of a format we follow. So I just I try to carry things forward because sometimes what we discuss in a previous episode we don't necessarily get to everything. And um, in the past, you know, we've uh, sometimes forgotten to thank somebody or read an email that we'd intended to. And so I try to carry that forward. And when I was when I was doing that, I think I carried forward the uh, the episode uh, number or when we're recording. And I maybe I just sometimes I, I just feel like I don't even need to look at the, the notes. So I'll just kind of rhyme it off. And maybe that's what happens. I kind of remember doing that from one of the episodes last week. I just kind of rhymed it off and, and didn't really look at notes or anything because we don't really rely we rely on notes somewhat but there, there's no real script here not really yeah yeah for the most part yeah so uh how was your week uh not too bad i finally did some observing hmm. um you know i think i mentioned last week when we talked that uh, like if there's any sort of opportunity i will be out <laughs> and, hmm. and uh, last sunday there was opportunity although not great opportunity um, there was definitely like the transparency was, was poor, uh, to say the least. I couldn't see any stars, mm -hmm. but there was basically a full moon. Like it was like a 98% moon. Yep. Um, and with that level of transparency, lunar observing is, is fine. You know, in fact, it, it's almost pleasurable because the clouds act as like a natural filter and re reduce some of the brightness of, of the moon. Um, and people should know that uh, Shane is originally from Saskatchewan and they are uh, the, the, the ultimate optimists when it comes to weather. So, you know, it's, you know, the cloud always has a silver lining. It's always going to be perfect weather in the seven day forecast. So if it's cloudy, Hey, that's, uh, that's all good. Eh? <laughs> well, you, 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 sometimes you got to turn lemons into lemonade and that was what I was trying to do. Um, you know, you, because <laughs> the other part is uh, like, I just can't, I, I don't want weather to to be like the the be all and end all of observing, especially in the winter time. Like if it's too cold, dress warmer, you know that sort of thing. Um, so when when I saw that the moon was visible, uh, I thought I will get out here and do some observing. So I took out the little Borg uh, fifty FL and um, my newish, I guess, Nikon spotting scope eyepiece. I've had it for a little while, and this is the second time I've used it. And, um, it's a great eyepiece, you know, like the comfort is, is really good. Like the eye relief is awesome. Um, it's definitely a wider field of view. Um, so it's a 17 and a half millimeter focal length eyepiece. Okay. I think the, um, I think the field of view on this is like 72 degrees or 75 degrees, something like that. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And the eye relief is like 19 millimeters or huh? 20. It's right around there. Um, yeah. Super comfortable. You can see the whole field of view, the field stop. Um, 
it's definitely wider than my Leica zoom at that focal length. Uh, wow. The Leica zoom at that focal length is about 62 degrees. So I, I definitely felt it. Um, the one thing though, that I wanted to test. So the first time I used this eyepiece, uh, it was like minus a thousand or, you know, or wasn't minus a thousand, but it might, might as well have been, cause it was super cold out. And I was just looking through the window <laughs> and, uh, there was some edge aberrations in this Nikon, uh, spotting scope eyepiece. Um, but you know, when you're looking through panels of, you know, windows, you know, window glass, you, you can't really judge the eyepiece, you know, you no. really need to have it outdoors. So I, I kind of wrote it off. Um, now the night, like last Sunday, when I was observing, because I couldn't see any stars, it was really hard to test the edges. Um, I did move the moon, uh, to the edge of the field and it did look a little mushy. So we'll have to see how this thing, mm. how this eyepiece actually performs, uh, mm. um, you know, with some stars, but like we, we talked about this eyepiece a little while ago, it's super light, um, it's super cheap right now from uh, binoculars Canada. I think it's a hundred dollars and it's normally like a $450 uh, spotting scope eyepiece. Mm. Um, so anyway, more to come. Um, it, it really is quite similar to the Nikon nav SW eyepieces. It just without like the big housing around it. So, yep. uh, and a little bit of reading that I did online, um, said that the Nikon nav SWs were based on this spotting scope eyepiece. So I think there's probably more similarities than differences between these two. Um, but for me, I, I don't really like any kind of field like edge aberrations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the stars aren't tight all the way to the edge, this one probably won't see too much, uh, usage from me. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. But hundred yeah. bucks though. I mean, for, for a hundred dollar eyepiece Canadian, that's super cheap. It is, especially with like outstanding eye relief and on axis, like it was sharp, like super yeah. sharp. And it's, uh, it's very, very light. Um, I should put it on a, a scale, but it's, um, yeah, it's super light. So yeah, there's nothing to it. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of potential there anyway. Yeah. I wonder um, how Barlow, I, I think this is something that could benefit from Barlow perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Per, perhaps like a Barlow, um, can sometimes clean up the edges, uh, on those eyepieces because it, it simulates a longer focal length, which sometimes, uh, helps. Yeah. Well, don't sell it till I get to try it. I want to get my, I want to get my eye grease on this too and take a, take a peek. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think I'll sell it anyway, not at a hundred dollars like this yeah. one will have use, uh, you know, at, at some point, you know, yeah. so I, I, don't I think feel I'm like with with travel and stuff too, like, especially if a Barlow cleans it up. Cause you know, I have that 1.6 X, um, Nikon, uh, Barlow, the I, the IEC, I think that's what it's called. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. And so I'm just putting it in this, this is what a 17 and a half millimeter eyepiece. Yep. Yeah. So that would give like about like, uh, about like an 11 millimeter. And so, but like that could be nice because the, uh, the Nikon Barlow is super light anyway. It only weighs like, geez, I think it weighs like 1.9 ounces or something. So, you know, if, if that worked out, um, well, you know, that would make it, make a tremendous 11 millimeter eyepiece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to play around with that. Um, the other reason why I wanted to use my little board 50 FL if you remember, um, I recently purchased the, uh, the two speed Borg focuser for it. It's a Crayford focuser. Yeah. Yeah. How did that go? 
I just I can't recommend that focuser for that oh, setup. No. Yeah, the, it looks bad. it looks awesome. You know, like I love the looks of that focuser on there because prior to that I had just a helical focuser of uh, kind of in the OTA. Um, but, uh, the, like this focuser is really, really good. Like the quality of it is outstanding. The issue is the weight. Um, this Crayford focuser alone weighs 500 grams. So in general, oh, that's not wow. super heavy, but half, yeah, half kilogram for a one and a quarter inch focuser for a tiny little scope is it's too much. Bigger. And then you, you put a diagonal in there and an eyepiece and the balance just, it it's out of whack. And I had the telescope as far advanced as I could um, in its ring. And then, you know, the dovetail as far advanced as possible uh, on the mount just to try to, you know, balance it properly. And I still couldn't. And on a super lightweight setup, like what I'm trying to create with this 50 FL balance is pretty important because these super lightweight mounts, they can't deal with, uh, with an out of balance telescope really. Um, yeah. So I didn't love it. Um, and, and here's some specs. Yeah. So the Crayford is 500 grams. The OTA without a focuser is 290 grams. <laughs> so, so when I put the helical focuser back in play, uh, and, and there's a couple other adapters and parts, you know, that kind of go along with that because it's a Borg. So the total weight with the helical focuser is 606 grams. Well, just that Crayford was 500. So, so it's kind of a no brainer to me. I, I'm going to uh, go back to the helical setup because it'll just operate a lot better on the, the smaller mount. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking up here cause, um, I have the, the lightweight, uh, let's see. I have the, yeah, this one, how much is, how much is 0.9 pounds in grams? 0.9 pounds, two grams, uh, 408. Yeah. So that's the lightweight feather touch. And I, I have one of those, so it's, it's not even significantly lighter, really no. hundred, hundred grams. Yeah. Just a touch, but yeah. But then yeah. it also has two inch capabilities, whereas that's true. this one is inch and a quarter. So this one is, yeah, I think it's fairly heavy for what it is. Yeah. I think, I think you're right there. Yeah. And, and my, uh, I determined that that feather touch was, was too heavy for, uh, for these kind of purposes. So yeah, the, the, uh, the helical, helical focuser. Yeah. is definitely, uh, I think the way, the way to go. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I've put the, uh, I have the, I had the, uh, lightweight feather touch made for my, uh, Borg 60. Um, but to be honest, that seemed kind of like overkill on that scope even. And so I just swapped back to the, uh, standard, um, Takahashi focuser and then modified it with a, uh, a Bader, um, adapter so I could use two inch with it. And that, I feel like that's a perfect setup for that scope. Yeah. It works, works totally perfectly. I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, uh, the little scopes, uh, and, and, you know, big weight at the, uh, I guess kind of the eyepiece end, uh, just doesn't work well. So it's, it's super important to try to you know, balance that as best you can. And, and then the whole, the whole experience using it becomes much more pleasurable. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've really lightweight diagonals and other lightweight pieces to, to use in, in that uh, back end of the, of the little 50 that, that I have, but uh, yeah, uh, no, that's kind of neat. That's kind of neat that you're able to, to get them using uh, that scope and you're still using it on, is it a caster mount? Is that what it's called? 
No. Um, well, I have that caster two mount, but yeah. um, no, I'm not using it on there. I bought that Borg single fork, single arm fork mount that okay. uh, I'm using it on. Uh, that's part of the, you know, this, this is all part of that suitcase observatory concept that I'm going mm. for. And um, yeah, it works. It works really well when everything's balanced. I quite like it. Okay, cool. Cool. Very cool. So did you look at anything other than the moon or just the moon? And if you're looking at the moon, what were you looking at on the moon? Well, it was just the moon with that transparency being so poor. Um, there was really nothing else that I could see. Um, and then with the moon being full, you know, I'm not a, like, I'm not a huge lunar observer to begin with, but I'm certainly not a full moon lunar observer. Um, so, you know, the, the lack of contrast because the, of the Terminator is kind of, uh, I don't know, it's kind of boring to me and I probably shouldn't say that. And somebody will probably light me up on, on the email side of this after the As show. they should. As, As they, they should. should. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, no, I, you know what? I was just really looking and, and testing that eyepiece as well as that focuser. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, in the full spirit of transparency, uh, pun intended, um, the, uh, the session was Terrible. pretty short. I probably I wasn't. There, I said there would be bad jokes here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm ashamed that I've contributed to that actually. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, not, uh, just taking it in really not, not, uh, not really, you know, checking things off my lunar observing list. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Very good. Yeah. How was your I was week? On, I was on TV this week for astronomy. Okay. Okay. For three minutes. Wow. Look at you. <laughs> Big shot. You don't even get 15 minutes of fame these days. So I I was on uh, like one of the morning local news uh, channels, which is kind of funny because I don't have TV in my home. And uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, so uh, I was, I was trying to promote uh, the the astronomy course that I, that I teach Um, the, uh, the uh, continuing education center had set up the interview because I think the numbers are, are dropping off again, which they have in the past. It's totally fine. And, uh, yeah, it looks like we'll probably have about, I think we'll probably end up with like about a dozen people, I think in the class, which, which is a good number. I like to have, I like to have sort of our average number. I wish we could have our average number, which I think is like about 14 or 16 or something like that. I really wish like I could always have like 14, 16, 15 people kind of feel like that is the best number. Cause it's, it's enough people that, um, you know, you can really have a variety of topics that people are interested in and you'll have some people there that will have more experience and some people that will have less experience. It always seems like you end up with a pretty good mix. Um, but you know, I've had ones where I had almost 50 people and it just seemed like this, this seems like so much work, like, and I, and I volunteer to do this, right? So it's like, oh, I really should be getting paid to do this. If I'm doing this many people. And then um, on the flip side, when, and, and, and what happens though, when you have so many people, and you, you know, this Shane, you've, you've joined in the classes and you've done lots of lecturing and talking and all kinds of other things. Once you get beyond like a, like a certain number, once you get beyond like two dozen people, there's a huge percentage of the population that will not talk in front of more than 24 people. That's just a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Some people just aren't comfortable in front of a group. Yeah, totally. And, and I, I, I would say, I, you know, I kind of get that. Um, I've never had a problem speaking in front of big groups, but so it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's not great for those individuals. And then as well, like you, you'll get, you'll get people that really want you to drill down into something that is, probably not going to have broad appeal 
Like, and, and so you kind of feel like, well, there's going to be these people and there's going to be people that, that need like the basics. And it's, it's going to be a real mishmash of, of a class. So anyway, with, with a dozen or so people, I think, uh, you know, it should be, should be pretty good, but I'm curious to see if, uh, you know, we're, we're transitioning at work out of the pandemic slowly, you know, I know we have lots of the Omicron here, but, uh, but they're, they're trying to transition work out of that. And, uh, I volunteer where I work too, which is a little bit strange, but, um, I'm curious to see what happens as we go out of the pandemic. Cause when we, when we were going into the pandemic, my numbers had dropped way off in the class. And then um, soon after the numbers just skyrocketed, you know, like I was having like 40 to 50 people. And then gradually throughout the pandemic, that's sort of slowly trailed off as, you know, people have had their fill of, you know, online classes or whatever. So I'm curious to see if, if I went back like in the spring or, or summer or next winter, um, you know, if, if the number is going to like sort of shoot back up again when we go, uh, go in person. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll see, maybe I'll, I'll do a spring class and then, and then take a break for a few semesters and then maybe go back to it. Uh, never seems like I quite get to that point though, where I keep saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to take a break. And I think I took one break when we started this podcast, just because the university just wasn't set up for doing the online classes for the, for the, uh, for the continuing ed stuff at that point. And then, uh, anyhow, I, I made it up. I ended up doing another class. I'm going down a rabbit hole, but anyway, we had a Patreon message that you answered from uh, Joachim. Joachim? Oh yeah, yes, yes. Um, About star atlases, I think. Right, right. Yeah, he was um, he was interested in a recommendation for a star atlas. So I went to the one that we recommend, I think the most often, which is the sky and telescope pocket Atlas. Mm -hmm. Um, I have it, I use it. Um, it's wonderful. Like that can give you a lifetime of observing. Um, and then the other one I mentioned, uh, which is, uh, definitely at the other end of the price spectrum, uh, but interstellarium, um, just that it has, uh, you know, it, it, that, that is probably like the premier star Atlas, but not as easy to use at the eyepiece. It's a little bit bigger. Um, and like I said, it's a lot more expensive, but, um, you know, it's a beautiful Atlas. Yeah. I have mine sitting right here. Yeah. 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 Do you have the field guide with it as well? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I gotta say, I haven't really used the field guide as much as I thought I might, but I have it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I, what I like about the field guide is, uh, for a number of objects, um, like I, I think for pretty much like every page of the Atlas, then in the field guide, they divide, um, some of the objects up by aperture to tell you to provide a little bit of guidance to, you know, say this one, you know, is big aperture and, you know, maybe 20 inches or whatever. Um, and then they also have a, a, a number of sketches with different apertures of the various objects, which I yeah. think is kind of cool too. So it's a, it's a fun field guide and it works well with, uh, like the, the, you know, the, the base Atlas, if you have it. So it's, yeah, it's a fun pair, but it's not, it's not cheap, although it does go on sale occasionally. So if you, you know, if you watch, um, it, like if you keep an eye out, you might catch it for uh, a better price. Yeah. Yeah. So this is interstellarum by, uh, I think Ronald Stoy, Stoy, Stoyan? Stoyan? Anyway, anyway, it's uh, called Interstellarum by Oculum Press, but it's put out by Cambridge as well. And what makes it nice, you can get it in a few different formats. Um, I have the black stars on white background, which is my preferred way of uh, looking at things. Um, but it's sort of like, a, it's a tough paper. It's not, it's not um, laminated, 
but it's like a it's like a ruggedized paper. I don't know how else to put it. It's not it's not like rubber. What would you say it is? Yeah, it, it, it's it's a heavier bound paper with like a coating almost on it. Yeah. Um, now it's not dew proof, but it's like better in the dew than the like. There's a desk edition which doesn't yeah. have that, and like the desk edition you don't want outside, but the one that you and I have, which I think is the field edition, field edition um, has like yeah, kind of that. I don't know. It's a weird paper and I, I'm not sure what they use, but you, you can definitely, like it says it's produced using waterproof materials. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure I would want to wash it in, in a lake or anything like that. So, yeah, I think if you dropped it in a puddle, that would be bad, but yeah. I've had mine, I don't know for how many years now, six or seven years. And uh, I'm not going to say it looks like new because I, I use it. I mean, like sort of the corners are all bent um, and I've got lots of sticky notes. You can hear me sort of flipping them there. Um, but, but I mean, it's still like in perfect condition and I got to say this, um, so they did a couple things really well. There's some, no Atlas is ever perfect, but I think this is one of the better ones. Um, it has the whole sky. So unlike Urinometria, which is broken up into either one massive edition, which is in my opinion, too heavy to take into the field or multiple editions in the case, the older editions, which means you have to take multiple books into the field. That was just too much of a pain. Um, this thing, you, you can take the whole thing. And, um, it has, I think one of the best ring bindings on it. So in the past I've had atlases that have been ring bound and it always seems like somehow the papers work their way out or it doesn't work so good. Um, this one has out of all the field atlases I have, uh, used it, it has the best ring binding on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the premier atlases for sure. If not the premier atlas, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the pocket atlas, I think is, uh, is man, that is what most people are going to, uh, get the most use out of. I, I still have mine. I still use it quite a bit. I think I've actually gone through a Like I have to get another one soon because, uh, I trash them. I mean, they're, they, you know, they can take some pretty decent abuse. It's sort of built the same way. It's just a smaller version. It's actually a small version of the, uh, Sky Atlas 2000 is what it is, I believe, um, and I know a friend who took a copy because he liked it so much and, uh, and he had it rebound or his wife did for his birthday or something. Um, and what they did is they, they took it and had it properly laminated and like ruggedized mm. for field use. And, uh, but it ended up being huge. Yeah. Yeah. It would be quite <laughs> so, a bit bigger, quite a bit yeah. thicker with the lamination. Yeah. And, and I do have one small criticism. I think, I think the best way to get the, pocket atlas and if i get another one i might buy the jumbo pocket atlas which yeah. sounds ridiculous but yeah me too um just the sizing of the little atlas i think it's it's really not that little it's small but it's not that small and then because they shrunk it down some of the some of the aspect seems to me it seems a little bit off i don't know why but that, that that's just my own personal opinion and it's a small criticism for mm-hmm. uh, what, what i think is a great atlas yeah, you and I have talked about this many, many times while <laughs> observing that the scale in the pocket sky atlas is kind of strange. Like when you look at the distance, uh, you know, let's say you're you're trying to chase down a particular galaxy and you locate it in the sky atlas, the pocket sky atlas, and then you look at you know where it is in relation to other stars or constellations. When you then look up at the sky, it always seems like the scale in the sky is way greater, you know, and it, the pocket sky Atlas, um, doesn't represent the distance 
for whatever reason very well. But like yeah. you say, it's a super small criticism. Like it, it it's really not a, any kind of a showstopper. Um, it's a great Atlas that's super portable. Uh, like you said, I've used the heck out of mine. It's pretty worn. Um, and it's super affordable. Like I think it's a, probably about a 20 us dollar. Oh yeah. Uh, Sky Atlas. Yeah. And I'm going to say this, um, about, and, and I really like astronomy softwares. Like I have, I have a few, I, I, I pay for, um, for sky safari. Cause I use it for my classes. I use it for this podcast, I use it for all kinds of things. I think it's, I think it's great. Um, and I liked it. I liked it quite a bit and I've used sky tools, um, a fair amount. And when I bought, um, when I've bought, uh, when I had a couple of these different softwares that I've paid for, maybe I had three of them. Um, I got really excited that maybe I'd be able to use one of them in the field and <clears throat> nobody was with me. I was, it was like an okay night. Um, one fall, this is probably about, oh, uh, maybe 10 years ago. I want to say something like that, maybe nine years ago. It doesn't matter. So I, I remember going out to, uh, to the club observing site when I, when I still used to go there and, uh, and, and kind of putting my laptop up on a picnic table or something. And <clears throat> I remember <clears throat> having this, this problem of the aspect um, and, and finally realizing why it is so challenging to use technology in, in the field, you know, and I know that I've seen people use computers and smartphones and that in the field, um, but there are some real shortcomings to it. And, and this business with the aspect and the sky representation is uh is very challenging you know and i'm sure someone you know again is maybe is going to write in and and you know detail out their settings because i've talked to lots of people and i know people have like uh, they've figured out kind of a way to make it work for them but uh but i i couldn't get it to work i was always kind of battling with the fact that with the software you can sort of infinitely zoom in and infinitely zoom out but what is the correct um what is the correct zoom level i guess or the correct aspect for your device and the night sky for your location. Um, and that's a tricky thing to sort out. <laughs> like it turns out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more, more so than, than maybe, uh, maybe one might think. So, uh, so yeah, that, that experiment went south pretty quick and I was getting like, even though we don't get that much do here, it seemed like, man, how come like, it just seemed like the moisture was attracted to the computer and, you know, I've gone out and helped people with their smartphone apps before. And I'm just always like, Oh, like just get the pocket Atlas and a red flashlight. And like, cause I feel like there's, there's so many stumbling blocks with the, uh, with the softwares and getting them set up properly. And, and even when people do like, then there's that aspect ratio and, and that sort of thing. And, and then as well, sometimes, I don't know, it just, just seems like people get too caught up in the, in the device, you know, like I've, I've seen it before where someone takes it out and points it at something and then they click on something and then, you know, 15 minutes later, they're, you know, they're, they're answering messages on Facebook or something, you know, like, like what's going mm-hmm. on here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. So what's next here, sir? I get some jokes from Ozzy for us. So mm-hmm. how do you, how do you organize a star party? Yeah. You, I, I, I'm going to check myself out here <laughs> podcast for the next couple of minutes. So uh, how do you organize the star party? You plan it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Groan, groan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, yeah. Then he, he put one of my favorite ones in, you know, is, you know, well, he, he phrased it differently. The way that I, I, I had heard it originally was, you know, why did, why did the, why did the disco 
uh, on that they put on the moon, uh, you know, failed to become a success. Right. Mm-hmm. I've heard you tell this one many times, actually, yeah. when we're doing public outreach. Yeah, it had absolutely no atmosphere. And then, uh, but he, he had one I hadn't heard before. And that's so, uh, what did one tectonic plate say to the other after bumping into it? <laughs> this, is, this is kind of a Canadian response, too, I would think. My fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway okay yeah i'll I'll stop there i'll but what was funny i don't know what i said in one of the previous podcasts but i have people sending me jokes and other jokes and i appreciate that and comedians that i should that i might enjoy (laughs) like what did i say (laughs) because it was like ozzy and i i I think it was ryan and somebody else (laughs) sent me jokes and i was like what is going on What yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember what it was, but I know occasionally you slip these ones in there, so. <laughs> and then I just ignore them and carry on. <laughs> As you should. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. We had um, a really cool photo. This was, was awesome. Yeah, this yeah. was awesome. This was awesome. From and uh, we, we've uh, he he was one of the winners of uh, the calendar uh, Astro Geek Astro Geek as he's asked to be called. He said, refer to him as Astro Geek. So I'm doing that. Uh, he sent us an image of uh, Leo One and uh, said he heard about us talking about the galaxy Leo One and, uh, and mentioned that, that I thought I'd seen it through uh, a five inch and, and he reaffirmed that that's quite challenging indeed. And, and yeah, and, and although like I did kind of sort of confirm it because my friend Clark had a, I think it was Clark had his 12 inch set up nearby and we're going back and forth and finally, you know, pretty sure I'm seeing it, you know, more, more so than not. Um, but, uh, but he sent us this image taken through a five inch scope and it's a 30, he says this, cause I'm not an astro imager, but he says it's a 30 minutes of CCD exposure. Our eyeballs takes, uh, our eyeball takes one sixtieth of a second exposure. And so this image is 1800 times longer and it is still rather faint. Um, and what's cool about this image. Well, first of all, we see uh, Regulus in, in the bottom center, maybe just to the right of center. And it's, it's pretty bright and uh, has, uh, has some, you know, uh, sort of some bright rays coming off of it. Um, I love the pinpoint stars, man. He's that, that's a great scope. Must be a Takahashi. I'm pretty sure it is Takahashi. Then you can even see some really little galaxies and it just, so there's like one. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's pretty ridiculous how amazing this photo is. Then there's almost like a chain of stars that kind of leads to Leo. I'm like, I want to go look at that now. It almost looks like a, like a version of uh, Kemble's cascade or something. Um, and then there's this blank area sort of, um, just above center. And, uh, I almost feel like I have to use averted vision, even when I'm looking at the, the image here, but, uh, it's sort of like this paint haze that this uh, pale haze, uh, to it. And I mean, honestly, when I look at his photo, when I first look at it right away, I think, yes, that's what it looks like. Um, but then like once I kind of look at it for, you know, uh, you know, a few seconds, I start to realize that he's almost like captured, almost looks like individual stars. Like it looks like granulation. I don't know if, if you see that as well, Shane, or well, zooming, like- zooming in, there's a little bit of granulation there. Yeah. 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 He's, he's definitely captured the stars and that, I did not see that. So, I mean, what I was seeing, I would say was one tenth as bright as, as what um, this kind of looks like in this image. And then of course I wasn't seeing any granulation at all. I was just like, very ghostly right but huh. so whatever. so you're still saying like like the observation through your five inch is uh like the, you're, you're sure you saw it i guess is what i'm yeah. asking yeah wow. and 
and what's interesting is I think the scale is about the same, actually, <laughs> like, like in his image. I think that the scale is very similar to, I think I was using, oh, I can't remember. I want to say it was like a 12 millimeter eyepiece or maybe a 20 or something. I can't remember. It's a long time ago. But uh, I want to say the, the scale looks pretty similar from, from what I recall. So like when I, when I got this, I was like, it really took me back. So I was like, oh, yeah, like that's pretty much like how it looked like in the field. So although I think it's uh, I think I was mirror reversed because I was using a diagonal and I'm assuming he's straight through. So pretty cool. Hmm. Interesting. I, I would like to. Jeez. Uh, um, I just looking at this image and how faint it is. I find it hard to believe anybody could see this through a five inch scope being this 30 minute CCD exposure is like barely showing it. It's nuts. So I, I guess maybe I should take out my 120 millimeter and just see, uh, see what it shows under. You would need a, a super dark sky to have any hope of that too. I would think. Yeah. Like where I was, it was our, it was our darkest spot that, that we could, that I could get to in Southern Ontario. And so I, I lived not on the edge of Toronto. Like I lived, um, about an hour and a half away maybe. And then, uh, this site was almost an hour and a half. It was more than halfway to, uh, to the great lakes from, or to the lake from, uh, from where I lived. It was in, I think like Bortle three, I'm going to say maybe. Yeah. So pretty dark, pretty dark. I, I would say about as dark as like the site that we sometimes go to, to our South. I would say it was, it was about that dark, mm-hmm. pretty dark. Yeah. Yep. So this is one of those, uh, one of those galaxies that, you know, apparent magnitude is 11.2. So you would think a five inch telescope probably could pull that out. You know, you should be able to see 11th magnitude stars, although they'd be pretty faint. Yeah. Um, but with galaxies, it's just, it's, it's so hard to really judge, like, I guess the ability to observe some of these things, because that brightness could be spread out over kind of a large area. And, uh, I think when we talked about Leo one, we talked about like M 33, like, you know, when you look at M 33's magnitude, I think it's like around like five or something like that. Um, you know, you think that that would really stand out, but it doesn't because it's quite a large object and, and it's, you know, the, the brightness is spread out over the entire object. And, uh, this is the trick with galaxies is that they're not all, <sighs> what am I trying to say that the apparent magnitude isn't necessarily the best indication of how easy or difficult yeah. uh, it might be to observe. Yeah. You know, I'm probably a good way to, and I, I didn't have these at the time, but probably a good way to kind of, you know, move into this observation is well. And, and so first of all, you know, for making such an observation, even though, you know, I've got a five inch and it's really, really good five inch made by Pentax and it's a power chromatic and uh, you know, the way the way that I made the observation is is to go out to get dark adapted to have um, some really good charts, really really dim red flashlights, um, and to uh, to kind of make sure I kind of knew the field first, and then to uh, to warm up by looking at some other really really faint stuff that I'd seen previously. Um, that kind of helps act as warm up. One thing you could try doing is is taking like those little. Um, Nikon binoculars that we'd made and, and looking at stuff like, uh, like the Triangulum Galaxy M33 and some other faint stuff, like really it kind of, kind of warm yourself up to it. Like, like I didn't just go out and throw the scope on it and see it. And, and I can't remember it. I doubt it was the first time I tried. I think I'd been trying for it, like for, for several sessions. I think it was not the first session that I, that I got it. So, 
yeah, it was, it was a bit of a springtime project that year. And yeah, it was good. Cool. 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 Chris sent me a note about his uh, candy apple red Altair six inch F six. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was kind of a neat read. Yeah. I, I really, man, I really love that scope. I think it just looks so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, Altair makes some really nice looking scopes and uh, it's kind of weird. Like they, they seem to do like small releases because they, I think they were one of the first ones that had that, um, what was it? A hundred millimeter F11 Acromat with ED glass. Yeah. Um, they were the, I think they were the first ones to put it out and it, you know, it sold like hotcakes. Like people were buying it and it sold out real fast and then they quit making it. And now like there's others that make it like, I think TS optics has a version. Uh, yeah. I think there's a couple ones out there and, and I think like this one, like, you know, the red Altair, uh, 150 F six, I think it's probably gone forever. Like if you didn't get one, I'm not sure they're going to make any more. Yeah. I don't know. I, I put my name on, I don't know if the governor or not, but, uh, I just, I, I think it's, uh, it's a, it's such a nice looking scope, but it's not incredibly expensive. All reports are, um, that it's just a fantastic instrument. Um, yeah, it's got some nice little tweaks to it. I think they've done, uh, both in the performance and color and, yeah, it, it's a big acromat that's six inches, but I think they've they've done some good stuff. I bet you that scope at a dark site could could see uh, Leo one pretty easy. Yeah, <laughs> easy, maybe, maybe easy, easy easily, easily. Per, perhaps I don't know. But he he wrote some more. Um, he said that uh, he's been really enjoying the show lately. I've had exactly thirty minutes observing since December eighteenth. I think December eighteenth was the last time I went observing. Um, he said, it's always cloudy, rainy, or high winds on long Island, which is where he's at. He said, uh, he enjoyed the, uh, the show on meteors. He said, one of our club members is a uh, docent at the Hayden planetarium in New York city. And in 2018, got us behind the scenes tours of the meteorite collection. We got to hold a variety of meteorites and most with our bare hands. I feel like one going to the Hayden planetarium is something I've always wanted to do. And uh, getting it, so getting a behind the scenes tour, that must have been just amazing. Uh, then he goes on to say, one was Mars. I can't remember the process used to identify Martian meteorites, but it was based on what was missing from the meteorite that they are able to confirm it was from Mars. Do you have a Martian meteorite chain? I feel like, you yeah, 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 I do. And do you, do you know what it is? Do you know how they confirm that? Or, um, there's there's some sp- like spectrop spectro oh gee i can't spectroscopy spe- spectrography i don't know uh, like the observing spectrum helps to identify some of the minerals that are on the planet and mm. I, I can't remember uh, exactly what that process is i would have to look it up again but um yeah there's a there's a way that you know people much smarter than than me can analyze what uh, another planet is made of. And there's some unique yeah. characteristics to, to every planet. And um, that, that I guess allows them to identify the origin of some of these space rocks. Yeah. A- anyway, I, that, that kind of struck me because uh, I did recall, I couldn't remember if it was you or Rick that had it, but I remember I, I was pretty sure it was you that had that Martian rock and that was pretty cool. So I, I've also been able to, uh, to hold that. And, and Shane has a piece of Mars uh, sitting up here uh, nearby to us. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, the professor giving us a tour also told us that meteor wrong joke, of course, of course, of course he did. <laughs> yep. He also gave us an interesting way of expressing how rare it was to find a meteorite. He said uh, they get thousands of samples and requests a year from people who think they've found uh, one and, and 100% of them are uh, 
are not meteorites. Um, and yeah, um, I remember when, uh, when I was really involved in, in the club, um, and the president of the club for a while, you know, I remember it was like, I feel like it was every other month, somebody was showing up with an old piece of briquette or, I mean, piece of coal, piece of slag, um, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Some of them were kind of interesting looking rocks for sure, but not meteorites. I, I don't think anyway, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think we ever had anybody bring in a meteorite to you. Mm, probably not. No. And, and like, you know, rocks on earth, uh, uh, some of them have iron in them as well. Right. So some of yeah. our rocks even respond to magnets. So, um, you can find meteorites. It's just the, the odds are probably not in your favor. You're likely just handling an earth rock. <laughs> yeah. And here in Saskatchewan though, the one thing that I, that I found out and for me, it's, it was, a, it's a little bit unsettling because where I'm from, everything, everything is, is built on Canadian shield, which I just take for granted or is it granite anyway? Um, and, and so there's not any Canadian shield out here. It's just, it's all just prairie dirt and gumbo, what they call it. And there are some rocks just like erratics almost from uh, the glaciers and stuff, but there, there's not, there's not as many rocks here, I guess is the way to put it, especially where we live. Like I think if I went in my backyard and just dug and dug a dug, I could, I could dig all day. And if I find a rock, chances are it's one that somebody carted in for landscaping purposes. Well, it really, it really depends. Like, um, you get not too far outside of, uh, Regina where we live, especially if you go West and it becomes very, very rocky, uh, under the soil, mm. you go a little bit East, it becomes very Sandy for a period of time. Um, and then if you go North, um, probably about five, 600 kilometers, you start running into Canadian shield there. Um, and then anyway, there's a, there's a lot of diversity. Um, but where we, where we live in this city, is uh, it used to be kind of swampy here at, at one point. So what we live in is a lot of clay and kind yeah. of uh, gumbo is what we call it, which is just the, it's God awful. It's sticky. It holds moisture. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's, it's very, very strange. Very strange as someone who came from, you know, a very rocky place. Um, yeah. It's sort of an unsettling because you're walking around you think, you know, you don't, don't think much of it. Like even out, um, at the cabin, you know, I'm, I'm out walking around a lot of the time and then I, then it rains and I start, I'm like, oh my God, like if I go in, I'm, you know, I'm going to drown in this. It's almost like it's like slippery, slippery and you can sink really far into it. It's not like quicksand. It's just like, you know, it's, it's almost like this never ending mud. <laughs> you know, It's crazy. Good stuff. Good times. Good times in the prairie gumbo. So, yeah. Uh, Larry from Japan, he, uh, he sent us his review of his haul. He had a huge haul of, uh, used IP, very lightly used Takahashi and Vixen Orthos. Maybe I'm forgetting something here, Shane. You get, he, he wrote that email. It was an amazing email detailing out all these eye pieces. And I'm like, Shane's going to have to answer this one. Cause I like, this, this looks really cool. I know he had some pretty good success with a 10 millimeter Kellner there, but, uh, that's, uh, that's more your wheelhouse. I know. So, uh, sounds like you guys had a, had a pretty good, uh, gab on, on, on that hall of eyepieces that he had there. Yeah. He had a bunch of 0.965 inch, uh, Vixen and tack orthos, as well as some Kellners in there. And, um, Larry has some vintage long focal length refractors, and I think he might have a modern, Apo, I, I can't remember, but um, he does a lot of double star observing where he's at. And um, uh, as such, you know, wide field of views are not super important if you're really just chasing doubles. 
And uh, those TAC orthos and uh, some of those old Kellners are just outstanding performers. Um, I've said it many times on the show that the, the Takahashi MC, so multi-coated uh, orthoscopics, they're 0.965 inch. I think they're the best value in astronomy. If you want like a high performance, high contrast eyepiece, um, you can pick these ones up for, I don't know, they vary probably 75 to a hundred dollars uh, US uh, per eyepiece. Um, but there's a lot of reviews online that say, like people prefer the old TAC MC orthos over the modern TAC Abbey orthos that are uh, currently being made at a, a much higher price point. Um, so I love them. They're awesome. They, uh, the, the other you know thing I love about these 0.965i pieces is they barely weigh anything. So you and I started the podcast today talking about balance issues with small telescopes. Mm. A great way to overcome it is to use lighter eyepieces. And um, there's nothing lighter than a 0.965 inch ortho or Kellner. And uh, again, these, these old, uh, even the old Kellners, they're made to... Um, uh, you know, a, a high level of, uh, uh, quality. And as such, the views are, are really quite nice. And mm-hmm. it's unfortunate, um, like, uh, Huygens, um, Kellners, they, they kind of have a bad rap in astronomy as cheap eyepieces and, and they just don't work that well. But the thing is the, the modern ones probably don't because they're just, uh, you know, they're churned out really quickly. There's not a lot of attention to detail, but if you get some of the older ones that were made to a much higher level of uh, quality, um, and if they're used in the right telescope, meaning like they're not meant to be used in an F like 4.5 reflector, um, you know, the super fast telescopes will strain these old eyepieces. But if you use them on a, you know, F8 or slower uh, telescope, and uh, also the eye relief is, is challenging. So, you know, if you can get around that, they often perform exceptionally well and certainly punch above their belt uh, or above their weight in terms of uh, quality for what you pay for them too. So mm-hmm. I, I just, I think they're wonderful eyepieces. I'm glad that uh, Larry is enjoying them and he's also discovered uh, the quality. Um, he did talk a little bit about uh, like comparing the Vixen orthos to the TAC MC orthos. And he said it was uh, uh, very close, like they were very similar in performance, although he felt like the TAC MC ortho uh, was just a bit better than the Vixen orthos. He said it was kind of subtle, but uh, there was a noticeable difference. And uh, that was that's interesting because I've not uh, done that comparison before. So mm-hmm. uh, I can say that I, you know, I've owned uh, just about all of the TAC MC orthos. And they've just never disappointed. They are outstanding performers. Cool. Yep. Cool. We, yeah, and I, I enjoy those emails from Larry. And uh, we had we had a pile of of other emails. Uh, just one I'm trying to get into. But you know, one of the things you and I were just we, we were almost just gabbing about the show and and the emails we get from people. The, the you know, if I've learned anything from doing this podcast is is this is that is that you know, whatever I'm interested in, or maybe like you and I are interested in, or even throw Mike and our larger group of friends in, into the mix are interested in, in when we go out to do astronomy, isn't necessarily what everybody else is, is into. And it's actually been, um, you know, really surprising to be one, like how many people are really into double star observing. Um, that's, that surprised me quite a bit. Um, I feel like, wow, like, there's, I think there's almost more people that are into double stars than, 
than are into um, other things, but probably just as many into double stars as like deep sky observing. And that, that surprises me just from where I come from. Um, but that's super cool. Uh, so it's really interesting when we get those emails from Larry and others talking about their double star observing and what's working well for that. Cause I'm just like a total sponge when it comes to that. Cause I, I have no idea about any of that. And then, um, yeah, the other thing is just like, uh, we did that episode on minor planets and asteroids and observing them, which, uh, yeah, again, like, uh, if they're, if they're up and we're out and we're having a good night and happen to have the charts and whatever, we'll, we'll take a look at them. Um, but it was amazing just to get images from people, to get sketches from people, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, like people are really observing, uh, that stuff. And, uh, that was also, uh, pretty, pretty surprising, but, uh, yeah, uh, some of the emails we had. We had one from uh, Ryan, and uh, I believe Ryan's in the UK. Um, but he does um, he he has a YouTube channel um, on barbecue, <laughs> so he's got the barbecue talks show. So uh, I was on there checking checking that out. I don't know if you saw that too, Shane, but no, no, I missed that. That's cool. Yeah, you gotta you gotta go take a look and. Uh, yeah, I really, really think it's cool. Somebody else was asking me what podcasts I listen to. And, uh, and you know, I'm not really going to go too far. So there's actually three other podcasts that I support through, like, you know, I, I give them uh, some some very small financial support, just like people do for us. And But they aren't anything to do with astronomy. And I really enjoy watching a huge variety of things. So I will watch some astronomy content and I'll listen to some astronomy podcasts but I would say, um, you know, there's probably eight or 10 topics I'm interested in. And probably there's like one sort of podcast in each. Um, and I'm super interested in barbecue because when I've, you know, been into the States and lived in the States briefly, um, you know, I've been to places that are really big into barbecue and it's like this whole thing. And I had no idea. Right. I just thought, you know, barbecue is just like this, you know, you have your, your little barbecue with a propane tank and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's, you know, not barbecue, right? You know, that's not what people are talking. It's like a, it's like a, it's a real cultural thing, right? It's, it's amazing. Um, so anyway, um, and there's TV shows that people can, can look that up, but Ryan's got a show on barbecue. And I I'd like to, I, I think when we get into the summer, we'll do, um, we'll do a special on, uh, astronomy barbecue. Cause we actually would have astronomy barbecues, um, at, at all the clubs that I've belonged to. And you'd always have that barbecue every year. So there's, there's a show to be had, I think on astronomy and barbecue, Shane. Mm. Well, um, I love barbecue. I love smoking food. So let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's Shane's other, uh, antonym. He's, we call him smoking food. All right. Um, had, a had some nice emails from, from Felipe. He, he looked like he went up for a bike ride, sent me a photo of, of Orion that he took. I sent him a picture of, and he didn't write back. So hopefully it was okay. Or maybe, maybe it didn't go through, but I sent him a photo taken from the back of my house and there's across the field, which is like, I don't know, a couple hundred feet. Um, it looks like the surface of the moon and there's a snow drift and there's a fence over there and the fence top is about seven or eight feet high. And the snow is going over this fence. And so I sent him this photo and I don't know whether he got it was like, what like this guy's just too crazy for living in a place that has like eight foot high snowdrifts just like everywhere <laughs> or what because the snowdrift behind my house is just absolutely immense you could i was thinking i would go over because i've done this you can go over put my snowshoes on and walk up the drift and walk along like the top of the fence and i've done that in places um because we can get these massive drifts from, from time to time 
um, let's see, had had some email exchanges with with Adam uh, on observing. Um, pretty good conversation there. And Bill, I'm not going to get into this. Just going to go over this very briefly. Bill had a question, and uh, I'm not sure. Did you see the question from Bill? I think you did. I answered it. Uh, yeah, jog my memory. I probably just, did, but I'm going to float it out. I'm going to float out to people because this is one of my favorite questions, and I I only kind of sort of know the answer to it. And the only reason why I know any answer to it at all is because um, Dr. Roy Bishop, who's the emeritus professor at Acadia University in, in physics and astronomy, um, I think I attended a lecture by him and either somebody asked it or I asked a follow-up question or, or he just did a, did a lecture. And I remember him um, talking about this, but uh, Bill's question is this, and, and we'll see, maybe people can write in their, their answers. I'm just curious to see if people can figure it out. And, it, and sort of strangely enough, it's not something you can really Google. So I'm going to sort of put that out and people can try, but I wouldn't Google this because um, I did, because I kind of knew the answer. And I was like, these answers are not, not quite the answers. Um, so Bill's question was, why do some star patterns like um, the stars in Taurus and the Pleiades? So maybe if you look at the Hyades and the Pleiades, uh, they rise vertically. Okay. But they set horizontally. And so uh, why this why does this you know and there's other star patterns that do this i'm going to just leave it at that but why do the stars in taurus rise and and the pleiades rise vertically so if you kind of look at um taurus and you kind of look at the uh, pleiades and now i'm going to kind of put this in this is from like sort of our perspective uh maybe between um 40 and 50 degrees um latitude okay so I'm going to, I'm going to put that in there and that kind of gives you all the pieces of the puzzle and we'll, we'll see if people, people reply and can get it. So you got to kind of have all those pieces to try to figure that out. But there, there is sort of an answer to it. Why, why did they rise horizontally or vertically and set uh, horizontally? And there's, you know, there's, there's others that will as well. So you can, people can play around with that, but you won't really find an answer. There's not, I, anyway, I couldn't find an answer. Maybe people can point me to an answer, but I, I looked really quick just to kind of check my homework, but uh I'll, I'll reveal the uh, the answer to that question next week. Uh, anything else to add, Shane? No, no, you have us all in suspense. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software. We're always excited to get emails, observing emails, and your answer to the why stars rise vertically and set horizontally in some constellation to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.